In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. There is a dramatic rise in bipolar disorder compared to the pre-drug era. Diagnostic expansion into bipolar 2 has created an umbrella diagnosis where normal reactions to stress have been mislabeled as severe mental illness, justifying multiple psychiatric drugs. On today's podcast, we discuss bipolar disorder. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. Sean, I'm not certain that I should be actually recording a podcast today. All right, that's a wrap. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I stepped back and I said, Listen, this is a great opportunity for me to be radically genuine. And be honest, it's been a challenging week. It's been one of those weeks where I've engaged in a number of evaluations of young people prescribed five psychiatric drugs and also have been doing some parent consult of parents who are trying to manage teenagers who are also on multiple psychiatric drugs and experiencing a range of various symptoms, as well as that consultation in how to respond to school personnel's response to challenges those teens are experiencing. And I've been doing a lot of research historically on bipolar disorder. Mm. Bipolar disorder is a diagnosis that has now become an umbrella term in American society that is widely applied to people with emotion dysregulation symptoms. I can talk more about what that means. It's part of the problem with diagnostic expansion that exists in American culture. But bipolar disorder is one of the conditions that American physicians, American psychiatrists talk as if they have contributed to the advancement and treatment of that condition. And it certainly supports the widespread use of psychiatric drugs for stabilization. My concern is much of the American public, many of our listeners, and certainly the patients and the parents who I work with are unaware of historical context, as well as the overwhelming majority of physicians who are assigning this label and prescribing these drugs. So I do want to start off with a bit of a a history lesson. Mm -hmm. None of what I'm going to say today did denies the existence of what has historically been called manic depressive illness. Manic depressive illness meaning the presence of a manic episode. Manic episodes most frequently reported as high energy decreased need for sleep, rapid speech could lead to high grandiosity, certainly impairment in judgment, uh, hypersexuality, spending money you don't have, making impulsive decisions, really feeling on top of the world. It certainly is a behavioral presentation that can cause functional impairment and really negatively impact a person's life. Mm-hmm. 
they tend to be followed by almost a crash. And that crash can be a pretty severe depressive illness. Now that has been documented in medical literature dating back to Hippocrates. It's certainly a presentation of symptom and behavior that medical professionals have to both understand and manage. However, here is my point. That bipolar 1 disorder or traditional manic depressive illness historically has been rare. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by rare? Do you have any data? I do have some data. Dating back to the pre-lithium era, where it's been promoted as a drug for the treatment of what modern medical professionals identify as chronic bipolar disorder. So the assumption is is a discrete and legitimate illness in itself under psychiatric classification and that there are drugs to treat it. And if you take the drugs, you can manage that condition for the rest of your life. It's been sold to the American public. Certainly if you've been born after the year 1980, you really know nothing else. It's been, it's been um, in our popular lexicon. It's been discussed in movies, in television, news programs, media, textbook, and schools. So you grow up understanding or believing it to be a certain condition. How many times have you heard in American culture, take your meds, he's off his meds. Right? These are words are carefully placed from pharmaceutical influence, community, communicating that these drugs are medicinal, meaning they are correcting an abnormality as if they've identified that abnormality. Yeah, I watched Homeland. Homeland's a great example. <laughs> great example. So data obviously is somewhat inconsistent, but this gives you an idea about a range. Mm -hmm. The prevalence rate of this condition, pre-bipolar medication issue or medication error. So like, let's say we're dating back to 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s. It was considered to occur in one in every 5,000 to 20,000 people, prevalence rate. Medicated bipolar today, one in every 20 to 50 people. Whoa, that's a big jump. It's a dramatic jump. But when you also look back at some of the historical data and how it's been treated, and I do want to give credit to the book, Robert Whitaker's book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, which as a journalist, he certainly did an amazing job of looking historically back into scientific publications, studies, various data points, and reference them throughout this encyclopedia of important information to tell a story. The long-term outcomes of people who developed a manic depressive condition were quite strong before the drugs hit the market. So the symptom course also seemed to be somewhat different and even favorable. So bipolar 1 disorder was 
time-limited, and acute episode of mania and depression with recovery rates favorable. With functional adaptation between episodes when there was more than one episode. So there was really no documented impairment between episodes. It was time-limited. And then they returned to baseline. Good data suggests that upwards of 80% of people who had a first episode never had a second episode. Hmm. So right there, historical data would certainly question the idea that bipolar 1 is a chronic illness. Not when 80% of people fail to experience a second episode. Is there anything that says what initiates it or what the root cause? We don't really understand the etiology of those symptoms. And that's what's most important for people to know. They are symptoms with unknown causes. Now, I certainly can get on this mic and start talking about potential causes to that condition, especially as I sit here in 2023 after we've had Dr. Christopher Palmer on our podcast and Brain Energy has been published is the consideration of these symptoms to be more metabolically related mm-hmm. than a uh, what one might uh, describe as a specific imbalance of brain chemicals to be managed by a psychiatric drug. Now I want to fast forward to where we are as far as fu- functional outcomes today. Now, good long-term functional outcomes, Sean, are, are tend to be represented by quality of life measures and return to independent functioning. What that means is your ability to work, take care of yourself, become married, have children, have a family, stay out of the hospital. Okay. Right now, approximately the out, long-term outcomes of medicated Bipolar 1 disorder are around 33%. Additionally, by providing the range of drugs, we see a very slow or incomplete recovery from an acute episode, continued risks of reoccurrence, which means the drugs themselves might create a biological vulnerability that creates a relapse into mood dysregulation or manic or depressive episodes. And now we are turning what has previously been episodic into a chronic condition. We see long-term cognitive impairment, weight gain, metabolic illness, and a number, a full range of symptoms that impair one's quality of life similar to what is observed in quote-unquote medicated schizophrenia. So we want to challenge the notion or idea that bipolar one is as frequent as it is currently identified so the prevalence rate we have to want to challenge the prevalence rate occurs as frequently as frequently as it does in modern society we want to challenge the idea that the condition is chronic we want to challenge the idea that it is a discrete individually identified and scientifically sound medical illness under a psychiatric classification, we want to certainly question the modern treatment of such a condition. 
So something has happened. Diagnostic expansion over the past 40 years has led to a dramatic increase of the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Outcomes of bipolar disorder have dramatically worsened in the pharmacotherapy era. We have to ask ourselves why the astonishing rise in prevalence. Expanding the diagnostic criteria into bipolar 2 disorder is part of the story, but not the full story. Psychotropic drugs, both legal and illegal, have fueled the boom. What do I mean by that? Many of the drugs that are on market prescribed for mental health-related issues have side effects of mood dysregulation and mania. So we see a jump in classifications of mania when we see an increase in drug use, especially antidepressants or SSRIs. SSRIs. When these drugs became widely available on the market, we see an increase in bipolar disorder. So we have to first look at and rule out mania as a drug reaction. In some multi-site studies, 33% of first episode bipolar patients had excessively used some illegal drug prior to the first manic or psychotic episode. So that right there says about one-third of people are being diagnosed as bipolar just have a drug problem, Sean. Just have a drug problem. Marijuana use is associated with a five-fold increase in the risk of first diagnosed bipolar disorder. And a study in 2005 and 2006 between Mount Sinai Hospital and Silver Hill Hospital found that nearly two-thirds of first episode bipolar patients hospitalized abused illicit drugs. So there are narratives that exist in the United States, one of them being the homeless problem, that it's a mental illness problem. And I'm going to tell you it is a drug abuse problem. Many of the homeless certainly may have developed post-traumatic stress conditions. We don't know a whole lot about their background. It could be veterans. It could be a population of people who've come from traumatic environments. And that certainly drove them into substance use. But it is the substance use that has fueled the homeless problem in the United States. Interesting survey reported that 60% of people diagnosed with bipolar disorder received that diagnosis following antidepressant use. Hmm. So my belief here is that modern bipolar is manufactured as a chronic disease when in many cases it's a drug-related response and we're talking about bipolar one and it differs from the previous manic depressive illness that we have seen historically now diagnostic expansion the development of what's called bipolar two disorder as in the case with many psychiatric disorders it has the relative absence of any clear identifiable symptomatology that differentiates it from other psychiatric conditions and indeed normalcy itself. What year did bipolar disorder 2 
expand into the DSM? I believe it was the DSM-4, and I believe it was 1994. Okay, I'll do a okay. quick search. Um, you might have to fact check me on that. I'm going to say 1994 DSM-4. Okay. And one of the most challenging aspects of the development of bipolar disorder, which in some ways can be considered bipolar light, right? It is... It is without, you can be diagnosed bipolar disorder without the presence of mania. You can be diagnosed bipolar with what's called hypomania. And this boundary, this identification of what hypomania is, was developed arbitrarily. There's an illogical definition of hypomania, which veers worryingly close to a non-clinical or non-harmful elevation of mood and energy. The DSM-5 criteria for hypomania states that the symptoms do not necessarily have to cause marked impairment. And indeed, a significant pr proportion of individuals with bipolar 2 do not engage in risky behaviors that are typical of classic mania. Indeed, they report that, that they could enjoy brief periods of hypomania and associated with increases in productivity or creativity. This prompts the question on whether it is accurate and ethically appropriate to pathologize these periods. Do you want to know some of the experiences that have led to people being diagnosed bipolar 2 disorder? Let's hear it. Well, in some cases, people who have fallen in love have been used that experience to self-identify or be identified by some of the worst of our health profession to be identified as a hypomanic response. Because they fell in love too quickly? <laughs> too quickly? What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> right, let, me, let me clarify, right? Um, the ranges of responses for people who fall in love are as varied as the human population. So some people get very excited have a decreased need for sleep, stay up a lot of hours, um, engage in increased sexual activity, or uh, become less concerned about other responsibilities that might have occurred in their life. They might put a little bit less intention into work uh, or other friendships. Maybe they even take time out of work and they get really obsessive about this new relationship. They might even have elevated mood. So we're talking ranges of normal that can be pathologized as hypomania. That's not, um, that's not all. You know, a hypomania is an extremely subjective term. And I have seen people diagnosed with mania or hypomania in the modern era following a trauma response infidelity, gambling addiction, people who have high emotional sensitivity and reactivity, people who have legitimate medical conditions around hormonal or endocrine disruption. I've seen creative people and entrepreneurs who are very excited, work hard, are intensely focused, and go periods, four days, seven days, not sleeping too much, as they're obsessively engaged in work or creating something. I've seen people diagnosed with mania when it is really stress or anxiety that's driving it. So, for example, 
when you use symptom checklists or classification of disorders by uh, very restricted means of symptom classification, the worst of psychiatrists ask stupid questions and give these measures that don't have construct validity. So they ask questions. Have you spent, uh, have you spent money you didn't have? Well, that pretty much fits most of the American population. <laughs> That's the American way. Yeah. So anyone could answer that. They might ask questions like, have you experienced an increase in energy or decreased need for sleep? Well, that's a lot of people at one period of time. It can also be functional and adaptive. It doesn't mean it's pathological. But when you have 10 to 15 minute evaluations by some of the worst trained, least effective healthcare professionals who are working on an assembly line, that's how you get that diagnosis of bipolar disorder. You know, I've made statements that in the United States, you go into a psychiatric hospital, you go out with a bipolar diagnosis, and it's widely applied to teenagers. Outside of understanding context or the reason that they were placed in the hospital, some of them escaping abusive environments, some of them being sexually abused, they experience irritability, anger outbursts, difficulty sleeping. They enter into the psychiatric system, and then they are identified as bipolar disorder. They're placed on a cocktail of psychiatric drugs, many which have horrific side effects that mimic mania, which further reinforces the diagnosis that that individual is manic. And then you have legitimate clowns who know no different and have just bought into the pharmaceutical presentation uh, in the United States of what these drugs are as medicinal and when they observe these reactions to the drugs, they immediately pathologize it as a mental illness. And they tell these people they require drugs for life. If we do not recognize the limitations of the medical authority in the Western world, then we're never going to be able to stand up against this criminal, incompetent behavior that I see every day. And this is my challenge is working in the system, especially when it's done to young people. We see 14 and 15-year-olds placed on four or five psychiatric drugs and placed, on, placed with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Historically, children were not diagnosed bipolar disorder. There was no evidence in the medical history or medical textbooks of children being diagnosed bipolar disorder. It is a modern manufacturing of a disease. And we see young people being deteriorate over time. They're being prescribed multiple drugs for sleep, which impair their ability to enter into restorative sleep and create long-term problems in their ability to naturally fall asleep. It is an experiment on the human brain by the least qualified of our medical community. Listen, no one wants to say this stuff, but it's, you know, honestly, and it, and it doesn't mean all people, not all psychiatrists, but um, there are some psychiatrists who are innovative, who are critical thinkers, and they certainly have stepped outside the mainstream narrative. But in the United States, unfortunately, many of the uh, psychiatric practitioners are at the bottom of the classes of medical schools. Some of them even forced in to being psychiatrists because of their poor performance. Meaning the school said you have a choice. You can enter into residency and specialization in psychiatry 
or we're going to remove you from the program. And I'm not making that up. Wow. That speaks to the marginalization of those who are in emotional distress. We have dramatic, dramatic rises in the diagnosis of bipolar by the worst of medical professionals, most frequently happening in hospitalizations in the United States. We've talked about the increase in teens being hospitalized post-pandemic in conjunction with social media, social isolation, and a number of other factors. And though there's a their large majority are, are females and these children with their emotion dysregulation being viewed from this restricted lens are being diagnosed with this serious mental illness and entering into a system of taking what otherwise would have been an episodic condition that could be easily treated and turning it into a lifelong chronic mental illness. It is up to you, parents. I want you to hear me straight. It is up to you to prevent your children from walking down this dangerous ideology. And it's an ideology. It is not a science. Okay, let me answer some questions that I know others have had on social media. They see me as a psychologist and they see me working in an outpatient setting. And they automatically assume that I am not exposed to the most severely of mentally ill. So I'm going to speak to a little bit about my history and background and the credentials that I have. I'm going to talk about my previous environments of working. I've worked in a children's psychiatric hospital where there were kids aged 5 to 10. Psychiatric hospital is the highest level of care in the United States short-term or, or acute. Um, one might argue that long-term residential is another higher level of care. I've worked on a specialized unit in the criminal justice system working with youth who've been diagnosed with what is considered major mental health diagnoses, most frequently that being bipolar disorder. I've worked in community mental health. Remember, in the United States, the long, we don't have long-term care. Who were they treated by? They're treated in the community by psychologists like me or social workers or therapists. And I have worked in community mental health. That means where Medicare can be used. Medicaid can be used. Okay, so that means low-income disabled individuals with these diagnoses. I've seen them shuffling in to these centers with their health destroyed, obese, and not being able to function. I've sat down with them. I've examined their history. And they've been a large percentage. I have saw that they experienced first episodes that could have been understood and treated from multiple perspectives. But a, an episodic condition was turned into chronic disability by the system. I've done in-home family therapy, working with families who were part of the children and youth system, child protective services. I've been exposed to the consequences of poverty, abuse, and neglect. Additionally, I've worked in various outpatient settings and started my own center. In this outpatient center, I work with chronically suicidal individuals, those who have had severe eating disorders, who are self-injurious, who have abused substances, 
who've had multiple attempts on their life. I work with individuals who have had to survive the most horrific of traumas. So if you want to question my credentials or my experience, I hope that in some way lets you know what I've been exposed to. I also consult with parents and other organizations on how best to respond to child-related behavioral problems and emotional difficulties. I also consider myself an academic. I am well-read. I have a podcast. I have conversations. I seek out consult. I try my best to examine the literature and try to look historically to see how things have changed. We are in a modern era that is dominated by the pharmaceutical industry. Modern psychiatry in the United States They have become legalized drug dealers and they are an arm of the pharmaceutical industry. Previous to their alignment with the pharmaceutical industry, they did not have respect in American society as physicians. If you don't understand the longstanding inferiority complex of the psychiatrist in the medical profession in American culture, then you will not understand the current arrogance that exists. When their, when their argument are ad hominem attacks that just say, I'm the doctor, do what I say, that is a great representation of how their limitations in training and their exposure to only the drug model has created an authority that they have not earned. The human experience is complex, as is our health. Luckily, there are burgeoning fields of science that discuss the complex interaction between our environmental exposure to to trauma and difficulties and the differences in how people manage stress and its impact on our biology, our immune system, our nervous system, gut microbiome, our metabolic health. Thank God we have the complexity of science out there and well-meaning people that we can consult with to move beyond this era in American history and Western culture to simplify complex conditions into categorical diseases that were developed by the pharmaceutical influences and are now continue to be promoted by doctors who don't know much better. There's nothing worse than assuming the diagnostic statistical manual is scientifically valid. Anyone who does so is dangerously naive and ignorant, and they are creating harm. I am calling for a a complete repudiation of this entire system that has created so much harm and walk down a path where we can use science and compassion to be able to better understand the problems that exist. The widespread drugging of the American population and young people must end. Placing your children on multiple psychiatric drugs when they are not of age of consent is both a medical problem with our medical establishment, but it's also a parental problem that you just blindly accept this type of treatment without understanding the risks. 
I'm certainly frustrated by what I have observed this week. Our healthcare system has become a series of band-aids and pseudoscientific ideas that are nothing more to try to drug the American population. The consequences of such are continued sickness, mental distress. When I did my research on how bipolar is treated, I found 62 separate drugs. 62 separate drugs, most off-label, used to treat, and I say that liberally, treat, bipolar disorder. 61 of the 62 drugs are class C or D drugs. What What does that that mean? mean? (laughs) Class C, animal reproduction studies have shown an adverse effect on the fetus. And there are no adequate and well-controlled studies in humans, but potential benefits. This is the pharmaceutical, this is the medical establishment. This is, this is the allopathic medical establishment in the United States justifying harmful drugs. But the potential benefits may warrant use in pregnant women despite potential risks. Oh yeah? Tell me one pregnant woman who would support that taking a drug for a condition that you've manufactured that historically had an 80% recovery rate is worth damage to their developing fetus. And if it's, and if it's harmful for the fetus in, a, in animal studies, what do you think it's doing to humans? And what do you think it's doing to your body? Or class D which is there is a clear, identified, positive evidence of fetal risk based on adverse reaction data from investigational or marketing experience or studies in humans. But they then add, but the potential benefits may warrant use in pregnant women despite potential risks. That's how the medical authority justifies psychiatric drugs for pregnant women because of that statement. All 62 drugs negatively interact with alcohol. So that means you can't drink on it, folks. Can't have a glass of wine. Can't drink a beer. Can't have unprotected sex. No, you shouldn't. Well, right? you could be married. What well, the, the, the truth of the matter is you, are, you would, if you're, at, if you're at a certain age as a female childbearing years and you're on these drugs and you become pregnant you are placing your child your developing child at severe risk now there are very very interesting questions that arise in american society one of them is the extraordinary rise in autism and people try to make sense of the extraordinary rise in autism Uh, There's a movement that has concerns about all the vaccinations that are provided. Potential legitimacy to that. Certainly seems like there's a lot of vaccinations that are not necessary, but are on the schedules. But are we talking about the impact of these drugs on children? 
how many adults are now on psychiatric drugs and they were told that they were safe and they are not dangerous during pregnancy? By incompetent medical professionals who believe that they have to be experts in everything without earning that right? You become a medical professional in the United States, you feel like you have to know everything. Now, that's not everybody. Obviously, I'm not generalizing to every person, but there is a large vocal majority of arrogant individuals because of their position in American culture as a medical professional that leads them to believe that they have to discuss things with certainty. Red flag number one. You go to your doctor and they talk about things in certainty, especially when it comes to a mental health diagnosis or a psychiatric drug. Red flag, run away. <laughs> it's so disappointing because I... Uh, Obviously, I'm impacted by what I've been exposed to over the last 20 plus years. I've seen children become disabled. I've had to sit in front of parents whose children have died by suicide, who weren't suicidal prior to the psychiatric drug intervention. We've had conversations with people whose spouse or child died from what is a clear drug-induced suicide event. We have increases in violence, school shootings, mental illness under this system. And what I'm just seeing is it's getting worse. These physicians are doubling down on already bad treatment. Recent stories that I've heard from parents, from kids, a doctor laying out options of various psychiatric drugs and allowing the parent or the child to pick. Get out of here. No. But to be honest with you, that's what the entire science base is. It's like when you leave and they give you a, your choice of lollipop flavors. Similar. But it's not that different. Go to 10 different psychiatrists, you'll get 10 different drug regimens. It's, a, it's, a, it's fucking experimentation. And somehow they've justified that the blunting of emotion or some set of effect improves quality of life, though we have no long-term studies to suggest that. In fact, every study is short-term, eight weeks. Go look into the data for the treatment of bipolar disorder with those six drugs. Look at, go look at it. Do your investigation. See how long those clinical trials were. And don't get me started on the ghost-written papers by academics with, who have received upwards over a million dollars in consulting fees. Folks, this is a fact. The pharmaceutical industry is the largest criminal organization in the history of the world. Look at the amount of, of fines and lawsuit dollars that they have paid out. Do your investigation yourself. Don't take my word for it. Do your investigation yourself. 
the largest criminal organization in the world. They've committed fraud. They lie. They create drugs that they know have been proven to harm children, and they push them to market anyway. The drug sales can upwards in billions and billions of dollars, and even if they pay, pay out a billion dollar in fine, it's profitable. They own the major news networks in this country. They have purchased spots in television, movies. There's direct-to-consumer advertising. You don't want to admit it, docs, and you don't want to admit it, American public, but you have been brainwashed. You repeat the things you have heard as they sit subconsciously within your memory, and you've accepted them as fact, as legitimate scientific fact. Although you've done no research, although you know nothing, you'll repeat the message anyway. There is a large percentage of the mental health industrial complex and the American population that does the advertising for them. It is only through social media and podcasts that you can hear the alternative view. And that's new. I told you this was going to be scorched earth today. Can I ask some questions? Yeah. All right. So obviously you've been, I'm use the word, triggered <laughs> by uh, our, our recent uh, DBTA program that you're working with parents on. Not just that. I know it's, it's been going it, it, on for a while. Well, it wasn't just that. This week, um, the evaluations of, five young, of two young people on five psychiatric drugs are 20-some adults. They're not even in the DBTA program. But then you add on the consult that I'm doing. Yeah. So I'm not going to say it, it's triggered. There's nothing new. You know, it happened a lot in one week, but this is nothing new from what I've been exposed to for 20 plus years in the system. So I want to I want to kind of maybe wrap this up with um, other approaches, right? Many people turn to their doctors and they take drugs, but they're not thinking about the other options that are out there. One of those being dialectical behavior therapy. You know, we're a center that specializes in DBT. DBT has been around for 30 years and was started by Marsha Linehan, and that was primarily for the treatment of BPD. So you're not de denying the existence of BPD. You believe that it is uh, a, a basically a, some, somebody could be diagnosed with it. So what do you use uh, as the criteria to determine somebody's appropriateness for uh, BPD? No. Or I for, uh, for, I, for DBT, I'm sorry. So I, unfortunately, you're going to... Um, walk me down in a, in a direction that uh, allows people who are detractors of my argument to say, oh, well, this guy just works with a specific population. That's not what I'm talking. I'm talking about okay. my 20 plus years of experience here. So if your question is uh, more, I think, appropriately stated, what about people who are really suffering with their mood? What if they experience a manic episode or severe depressive episode? How do we begin to approach it? Well, when it's children, it's very clear. First line should be watchful waiting and or therapy over time to get an accurate understanding of all the factors that are influencing the mood instability. Mm -hmm. That in itself would save lives. It would save lives because the majority of these conditions are episodic. It's a, it's a discrete 
period of time in response to a specific stressor. So just not seeing a psychiatrist and being labeled with that diagnosis of bipolar and, and being placed on multiple psychiatric drugs and trying to figure out what is actually going on with that teen is going to save lives. If you want to talk about um, that percentage historically that does have bipolar one disorder, thinking about psychiatric drugs or what have been marketed as mood stabilizers to be short term and stabilizing is reasonable. I'm not saying that there's no drugs that act on the brain you remove from the market. So if somebody is a danger to themselves or others because they're in a manic state and or psychotic, certainly um, some short-term stabilization using a psychotropic agent can be considered stabilizing and much needed. Where the scientific literature and the long-term outcomes question what is currently happening is that one, it would have to be on the drugs for life. And somehow they, they provide positive outcomes that improve quality of life and stabilize this condition. Not from what we look at historically. And when it comes to children and adolescents, historically, that condition doesn't exist. Traditional mania and uh, severe depressive episodes have not presented themselves in young people. So it's rare to begin with in adults and fairly non-existent. So what's happening is the misunderstanding and the misdiagnosing of child-related mood dysregulation. What could lead to child-related mood um, dysregulation? God, I can do an entire podcast on it. It, you know, it, it can be drug use. It can be prescription drug use. It can be abuse. It could be neglect. It could be struggling to adapt and cope with developmental challenges. It could be sleep-related problems. It could be diet. It could be exposure to toxins. Jeez, we don't know. It could be an underlying... It could be a skills deficit. It definitely could be a skills deficit in learning how to regulate emotions. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know that... Um, there, there are very distinct challenges of being able to be a teenager in today's culture and how that individual copes can lead to, to problems and how parents, teachers, or medical professionals respond to that condition. It could be underlying medical conditions, right? There are a lot of different con uh, conditions that could lead itself to mood instability. My point being is the psychiatric diagnostic manual is a made-up constellation of symptoms without understanding etiology, without identifying the cause. And the younger you get kids in that system, the worse the outcomes. Wake up. We have to wake up. I'm not, I'm not asking for more simplification. I'm not saying anyone who's struggling that the answer is come for cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavior therapy. No. Let's understand what's actually happening. How about some caution? How about some patience? How about some humility? No longer a rush to judgment. Quick diagnosis, leaving with a prescription drug. How about taking the time to accurately conceptualize the problem? You're not going to do that in 10 minutes, doc. And you're not going to do it in a one-week psychiatric hospitalization with your checklists. Again, I'm open and welcome to debate on this issue. Come on on. Talk to me.
yeah, I'm angry today. But I'll be able to have a professional conversation with anyone who has an alternative viewpoint or wants to present some data that suggests the manner in which we're approaching the mental health and well-being of the American population is somehow improving outcomes. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.